Okay, hi everybody, and, uh, and hello if you're watching online. Uh, we're going to be spending some time in God's Word together. So if you have a Bible, uh, please find Genesis uh, chapter 19. We've been in this series for a little while now, focusing very much on, on Abraham, uh, the journey that Abraham and Sarah uh, went on because God called them to, uh, to a new beginning. You remember Paul mentioned at the outset, God highlighting that word new. And uh, that, that highlights what God did for Abraham, called him onto a new journey to go to a new place with new and rich promises from God about becoming the father of a nation that would bless every nation on the planet. And that would be fulfilled ultimately in Jesus being born uh, as part of that family, one who blessed the whole world. So um, Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God. Abraham followed God. Uh, and he, he, he was living for a bigger story than just his own life. He was looking forward to what God would do even beyond his own lifetime um, and how God would bring that, that blessing. So he, he becomes for us a model uh, of a friend with God. He shows us how to live by faith and be friends with God. So that's true for us personally, that we can know a new beginning in our lives. Uh, we can receive rich and amazing promises that are, uh, that are richly valuable and worthwhile beyond our life. And it's a model for us right now um, as a people, as a church, um, if you've been part of City Church for a while, to know, well, well this is a new beginning for us, uh, a strange new beginning perhaps. And we don't know all that the future holds. We don't know what all the next steps will be. But just as Abraham went trusting God, uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to keep going, trusting God. And so for now, kind of gathering like this, uh, increasing the numbers in the weeks to come, looking forward to when the restrictions ease further, the masks can go, we can do hugs and high fives and all sorts. But aware that uh, as much as we look forward to gathering, there'll come a point at some point in the future when we'll kind of scatter to different locations around the city um, that are the hubs that now exist um, some of which might start to meet in other places, other parts of the city. We'll keep doing this. We'll keep gathering together at the Jubilee Centre uh, and also looking to gather in other parts uh, of the city as well. Now, if you found Genesis, um, we're going to read most of, not all, of Genesis chapter 19. Uh, this is the next part that we've arrived at. So here we go. Uh, Genesis 19, I'll, I'll read the first 13 verses or so to start with. Say this, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they, uh, that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no. My friends, don't do this wicked thing. 
Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you like to them. But don't do anything to these men, for they've come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the, house, at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. I can remember, um, I don't know exactly how old I was, maybe eight, nine or ten, around that kind of age. Uh, this was the, the stage of family life when um, parents kind of insisted that we would go for a walk in the countryside. And so that's, that's what we were doing. I can't remember if I was with my dad or my mum, but we were on a walk in the countryside. This is now the kind of thing that we inflict on our family, you understand. Um, and uh, I can remember being with my sister and walking along a footpath which bordered onto uh, a field with livestock in it, uh, some sheep. And we, we were hoping, we lived in hope that if we kind of like picked up enough grass, they would come, they'd come over to us and they might eat from our hand if we just reached over the fence. That, that was the plan, that was the hope. And then my sister gave me a big whack. Maybe that wasn't terribly unusual, but I wasn't aware that I'd done anything terribly shocking at the time. So uh, we, we almost get into a fight. Why do you do that? Well, you hit me, she said. I know I didn't hit you. It took us a while of, of falling out to realize that we'd wandered up to what was an electric fence. And uh, now there's legislation that says, uh, I understand anyway, that there should be little signage on an electric fence if a footpath goes past it to, to say, it's an electric fence. This might shock you. Um, pity the, uh, the sheep on the other side. There's, there's no other sign, is there, for them? I don't know what that would be, bah, in like capitals. And they would just know not to go near the fence. Um, because this is designed to shock you. This passage functions a bit like an electric fence. And it shocks. And in, in, in looking through it this morning, if, if you touch the passage, you might listen to me and think that I've hit you. Um, but this passage is here as the word of God to shape us and to lead us towards him, even though it is shocking. So I wonder what you find most shocking about the passage. I will not dwell on, on lots of the detail, but let you tune in yourself. Um, we could be shocked, we should be shocked by what the men all the men of Sodom were prepared to do. Just to put into context, the two visitors had come to Sodom that day. And before the end of that day, all the men of Sodom had gathered at the door. 
It didn't take them very long to come up with a plan that they were all eager to set about. Uh, that's what the passage stresses, all of them, young and old. They were, this is a remarkable picture of incredibly nasty unity. Very quickly, they are utterly united in what they want to do. And that's shocking. So maybe that shocks you. Maybe you are shocked. Maybe we, uh, I think we should be shocked by what Lot suggests to do uh, in verse in verse 8, look, I have two daughters. Let me bring them out to you. So, what was he thinking? It's offensive. It's shockingly horrible. And maybe we are shocked by what God is prepared to do. You see how the, the account unfolds with Lot trying to protect these two visitors. It spins around when we realize, or when they realize in verse 12 and 13, that those visitors are there to protect Lot, to warn Lot. The, uh, it's described in verse 13, we are, we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. God's going to bring destruction because of this outcry. God knows the ugly, nasty, horrible stuff that happens in Sodom as standard. And he's gone to, he's gone to intervene. Maybe that is something you find shocking. It is uncomfortable. It's sobering. And I, I wonder if this happened, when these sorts of things happen in the Bible, when something so shocking and horrible happens, the narrator, whoever wrote the particular book in which it's recorded, kind of lets us know that it's coming. Just gives us a, a tiny preview. You get it in chapter 13. Uh, in, uh, in chapter 13, verse 10, um, an earlier crisis, a different one, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in brackets. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You just get um, a preview of what's to happen. Verse 13, just a few verses further on. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So we're kind of prepared for it. If you want a, a parallel of when something similar happens, it would be the fact that Judas betrayed Jesus. So through the gospel, when, Ju when that particular Judas gets a mention, we're told this is the Judas who would go on to betray Jesus. Jesus went up on the mountainside, prayed all night, and chose his 12 disciples. He came down the mountain and he called them out. Come and follow me, he said. And then we're given the list of names, and Judas is included. Judas would go on to betray Jesus. And as the story develops, we see how that happened in Jerusalem years later. So it's tempting just to avoid perhaps know that there are passages like this, but to want to avoid them. But the Bible doesn't do that, and the Bible helps us to understand the Bible. The Bible is the best tool for understanding the Bible, so we can look to the Bible to help us work out what are we supposed to take from this? What, how are we supposed to understand this when it's so highly uh, shocking and controversial? 
Let me give you just a, a, a few places we can turn to to help us to understand the significance of this passage and what we're supposed to take from it. Uh, you could go all the way to 2 Peter, which is near the very other end of the Bible, quite close to the end. 2 Peter, uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 6. Um, this is part of a much longer statement, but just reading one verse for now. Speaking of God, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made an example of what is going to happen to the, God, to the ungodly. Now, the, the statement continues, and we'll come back to it a little bit later on, but just see there. That's how Peter, one of Jesus' followers, one of Jesus' disciples, understood those events. They are an example. God made an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, to those without God. Right across the planet, not just in one location or with one particular lifestyle. So what we take from this is that God, in the same way that a day of judgment came in that particular time, for that particular place, all those thousands of years ago, there will be a day when God will judge and punish all the ungodly on the whole of the planet and in all of human history. That that's, that's a day that is coming. The issue then is ungodliness. The issue is being without God. The issue is not having him in our lives. And if we don't have God in our lives, there's a whole number of things that can grow up. We, we just heard what Neil shared from that video earlier on uh, about nasty, yucky badness in us that we can become fat with badness. And, uh, and there again are another few scriptures that help us to understand, well, how, how does that ungodliness show itself? And the answer is in a whole variety of ways, but I'll, I'll take you to other places of the scripture that shed a little bit of light on it. Again, very, very near the end of the Bible is the book of Jude. I don't need to give you a chapter reference because it's just one chapter. So Jude verse 7 says this, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example, there's that word again, of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So for Jude, he, he sees what happens there as an example, again as an example, and the ungodliness he sees and draws our attention to is sexual immorality and perversion. That means that others writing the Bible understood that in Sodom their ungodliness was not just about consent. They didn't ask politely. They didn't, they didn't seek consent. Consent is important, but what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah is about more than consent. It's about what they wanted. What their hearts desired was ungodly. Now, we could home in on just that example and, and dwell there. And it's important, maybe there's an element of challenge in the midst of lockdown that you've started to want, and we may have started to want things that God just says, that's not godly. But in isolation, locked away, things have started to become attractive, perhaps. And God would urge us to him, to, that, to the embrace of God 
and turning away from anything that he might say, that's, that's not my way. Let's look at another scripture as well. We could turn to a passage in the Old Testament and we could look at Ezekiel, one of the prophets, near the middle this time, and Ezekiel and chapter 16. How does he understand the ungodliness of Sodom? And if we look in Ezekiel 16 and verse 49, he writes this, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Again, Ezekiel 16, verse 49. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. So Ezekiel focuses here on on ungodliness and calls it out and says, well, there's also arrogance, being totally unconcerned with those who don't have very much, who are poor and and, and developing then just a, a haughty attitude. I'm fine, I'm okay, and I'm only really interested in me. And this could be something else that we just have picked up in, a, in the past year. I'm not saying it's inevitably the case, but it could be the case. I'm just kind of caring about myself. I'm just caring about those who are within the same four walls. I'm just caring for my nearest and dearest, but I'm, I've, I, mentally somehow I've turned away from the plight of anyone who's outside of my little bubble. The last year could have just made our bubbles a bit tighter, a bit harder. And that's what was happening in Sodom. They just didn't care. They didn't care for the lonely. They didn't care for the lost. They didn't care for the oppressed. They didn't care for the poor. And we could turn as well to another passage. We could look at Matthew chapter 11. And we could see what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, where he mentions uh, Sodom as well. So I'll read there. He's talking about different places that he has been and performed miracles. And he says in verse 23, Matthew 11, verse 23, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now, what, what prompted that stinging rebuke from Jesus? Is that Jesus had turned up, demonstrated the kingdom of God, and people had ignored him. People had rejected him. People had thought his, his message was unimportant. And that's what the Bible would say is ungodly as well. The ungodliness of ignoring Jesus. The ungodliness of rejecting him and what he's done. Of turning away, almost turning a blind eye to who he is and how he's blessed planet Earth. And that could be part of the ungodliness that has grown, if you like, during a pandemic. A a badness, an ungodliness, a nastiness, an ugliness. I'm going to ignore Jesus now. And we've got an opportunity to 
to recognise if that's anything that's got into us, if those highlight attitudes that we ourselves have, have developed, and to turn away from them and embrace God this morning and receive his embrace. Uh, not just in shame, but with this, this offer, this loving offer to get the yucky stuff out. Before that day comes, there's an opportunity to repent and turn to God and follow in Abraham's footsteps. That Those footsteps of faith, I believe that God wants to bless. I believe in these wonderful promises. However, only God knows when that day will come. Later this afternoon, or thousands of years, we just simply, obviously, don't know. So there is this opportunity to respond, but we don't know for how long. There is, a, there is a limit. But praise God there's a limit. If there's no limit, if there's no day of judgment like this, then there is no stopping the snowballing effect of evil. It will grow. It will multiply. And individually and personally, we can think that we're so in charge of our own choices that we don't realize the snowball is growing. Momentum is developing. It's not in our control anymore. Sin wants to master us. It's not looking to make a deal. It's looking to own our lives. So praise God that there is, there's a limit. And if we can consider the, the evils on planet Earth, the, the, the massive ugliness, not just in one human heart, but just a, it's in the whole world. Praise God that it will not snowball Keep growing and growing forever. A time will come, as horrific as it will be, a time will come when God says, that's it. That's enough. I'm calling a stop. And the day of judgment comes. Now I can think, as we look through the rest of this passage together, in the time that remains, the passage itself highlights at least three responses to this frightening message of judgment. Um, and we can see these three different responses in different people and how they responded that day uh, to what was going on and the message that those two angelic visitors uh, brought. And the first, very simply, is in verse uh, 14. Uh, so we, we've just heard those two men say to Lot, you know, we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he sent us to destroy it. And then verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this uh, place because the Lord is, is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. So the first response, the first possible way of reacting to this message and to this passage, like Lot's sons-in-law, is to think that judgment is a joke. There's, there's nothing, I mean, not a very good joke, um, like a bad joke. Um, there, there's, there's nothing, I don't know what they're called, nothing in these guys' experience to indicate anything of the sort is going to happen. So they've received this message uh, from their father-in-law, their future father-in-law, and this is ludicrous. This is ridiculous. How can you, how can you say that? It's outrageous and it's nonsense. That sort of thing has just never happened. So how can you tell me 
that that's what's going to happen as though with some kind of certainty. You're joking. And you might have that response as you're listening to me now. How can you, how can you prove it? How can you prove that something that happened in ancient times that might have kind of some sort of mythical legendary status now, I mean, how can we really be sure that it happens because we're skeptical of everything? Um, how can we really be sure that that even happened? And, and how can we be sure that what happened in that particular place has anything to do with what's going to happen to the whole world? How can you prove it? And here's the thing, obviously, I can't. I can just tell you what the Bible says. And uh, we could turn again to another passage in the book of Luke and uh, look at what Jesus taught. Um, again, in Luke chapter 17 and verse uh, 28, Jesus said this, It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Uh, and, and on it goes. We might return to that passage as well. So Jesus made this point. That's what was happening in the days of Lot. And that's what's going to happen when the Son of Man is revealed. And that's one of his ways of describing himself. Um, it will happen. It will be sudden. Ordinary life will just be rumbling on in its ordinary, normal way. There'll be no, in, in, there'll be no indication that something decisive is about to happen that changes all of history or, or ends all of history. It's just going to happen. Well, then the question is, well, how can I take that seriously? How can I take the words of Jesus seriously? And the reason to take the words of Jesus seriously is I think we'll pay Pay special attention to what someone says if they went on to rise from the dead. If they've died and come back to life again, they are in a unique position to talk about what's going to happen to the whole world. Not just kind of resuscitated, not just having a near-death experience, but, but kind of certified by experts as dead and then alive again three days later as testified by multiple eyewitnesses who recorded the detail of those events in the Scripture. And you can say, well, well, yeah, but how can I trust in eyewitness accounts that are now thousands of years old? I said, well, if you will only trust... You can see it's a little bit like I'm hitting you, but I hope it isn't too bad. Um, if you'll only trust in your own first-hand experience it will be too late. So I invite you to consider what Jesus says and what the scripture says about what happened because he's risen to new life. And if he has experienced that kind of eternal new life, you can know that if you choose the embrace of Jesus, he will give that new life eternally to you. And you'll become with him one day resurrected uh, in a body which will never fail and give up. Now, if you like, this is the response, if you do identify with Lot's sons-in-law, uh, this is the response I think that most makes sense. If we look at the, the other responses to come, 
So we see how, how Lot responds. Um, and uh, we can see that in verse 15 onwards. Let me just get back to Genesis 19. How does Lot respond? He, he, he's just a bizarre. He's a mystery wrapped up in an enigma. Here we go. Because it says in verse 15, just remember, he's been to his sons-in-law's, sons-in-law, and he said, he said to them, hurry, you've got to get out. Now listen to what happens. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his, uh, oh, sorry, I've read that bit. Sorry. <laughs> Come to verse 15. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry. You can see why I got confused. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your, your servant has found favor in your eyes. And you've shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well. I will grant you this request too. I'll not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That's why the town was called Zoar. So it's a bit of a bizarre response. In a way, he's convinced and he's telling his sons-in-law, but he too still needs convincing. He's hesitating. Why? If he believes the message, why is he hesitating? Uh, the only reason Lot is rescued is because the angels dragged him out of the city. Otherwise, he might have just stayed there, kind of apathetic. It is a really bizarre response. And if you have the question in your mind, why did God save Lot? Then I would sympathize. Why, why did God, from the previous chapter, Abraham's been up on a mountain pleading with God, if you can find 10 righteous people, will you spare the whole city? And the implication from chapter 19 is, no, there weren't that many righteous people. There weren't that many godly people. But God, in his mercy, rescued Lot. And we're told, again back in 2 Peter, that Lot's righteous. So 2 Peter, chapter 2 again. Yeah, we read that verse, didn't we? Verse 6. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Well, yes, he was. But we can just see his inconsistency, can't we? Disturbed by what those men were going to do, he's about to send his daughters out. He's more affected than he realizes by the sin. That sin has started to get into him. And so that seems like the right thing to do. How can we regard him as, as righteous? 
Well, continue to read in 2 Peter, verse 9. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for, for punishment on the day of judgment. Lot is inconsistent. Lot is messed up. Lot does have a bit of yuck on the inside. And the only thing that saved him was that he believed in the God of Abraham. He trusted God. And if we are prone to judge Lot really harshly and disagree with God's word, then we can be stung by our own judgment. And the same can happen coming out of lockdown if we're tempted to judge somebody else quite harshly and how they've been handling things and what they're like to live with or, or, or how they've been spending their time and, and whether they're really righteous or not. If you're tempted to judge someone else really harshly, the whole scenario just becomes a mirror. And we realise in, in, in reading about Lot, the Bible's reading us because it acts like a mirror sometimes and it shows us. Well, are you totally consistent then? Are you, are, you, are you genuinely and perfectly righteous in your own, by your own life? I mean, if you are, you can stand in God's presence um, in your own clothing, as it were. But surely we know enough to realize, like Lot, whoever I am, I'm a mixed bag as well. And there's probably some yuck in me, even if I am trusting in God. Now, there's loads that Lot's example can challenge us about. And maybe next time around we can look a bit more at how Lot, Lot's lifestyle, no one should want to follow Lot's example in terms of how he lived his life. He's a massive challenge. But I think today the main point is to take the encouragement. God's going to rescue all those who trust in him. And if you have little nagging voices of accusation and doubt in your mind, saying you're not very consistent, are you? You're not totally sorted, are you? How can you call yourself righteous? I don't think we are really in our own merits, by our own ways. That's the great misunderstanding of the Christian faith. Those who believe Jesus aren't saying you're a bad person. But we're a, good, we're a good person. Those in the Christian faith are saying, there's no one good and we need a rescuer. And the only way to be rescued is to believe in the God of Abraham. Because someone would come ultimately from Abraham's family called Jesus. And if you come and find me in glory, in the new heavens and the new earth, and you come and say to me, Dan, let's go and, let's go and search this renewed creation. Let's go and search the whole of the universe. Let's go on like this ep epic gap year. I uh, say, so yes, let's do it. Uh, why, why do you want to go on this epic gap year searching the whole universe that's now been made perfectly new and it has no sin and it has no disease. It has no racism. It has no corruption. It has no ugliness. It has no nastiness. There's nothing bad there. And you say to me, let's go and find all the people that deserve to be here. So, okay, let's go on a search around the whole universe 
to find who belongs to be in a perfect world. And it will be fun. It will be awesome. But we'll come back to like the center and we will conclude there's no one who deserves to be here apart from him. Apart from that one over there. And he's the one who's seated on the throne. And he's the one who gave up his life. He's the one who came to earth to embrace all the ugliness and all the horrors of sin and injustice. And because he soaked it all up in himself as one who is perfect, as he now embraces me, all of my yuck is absorbed and I receive his life. That's what I think at this point in the story the example of Lot goes to show. It's there to show God's able to rescue. God knows how to do it. All right. The third response, shown in verses 23, and I might just read to the end. Um, By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back. She became a pillar of salt. Actually, I will just stop there. That's, that's the third response. And hers makes the least sense. Because she's been led by the hand. She's been rescued She's been taken by the hand and she's out of the city. She's been following in the right direction. But as that moment of crisis comes, for some reason, she still wants to turn back. And she still wants to go back. I don't, personally, the way that I understand it, it's not just that she was judged because she wanted to steal a glance. It's the, the glance indicated where her heart was. And what she wanted. I I could be rescued and I could be with God. But there's something about that place that still I just so gravitate to. She wanted to go backwards. And this is the profound warning to anyone who's, who's heard the message of Jesus, who's heard the good news that only comes in his name, and for a while has gone along with it and has gone in that direction and has then reached a point in life of thinking, nah, I don't think so. I'm, I'm going back the other way. And there's, there's nothing left. There's, there's no other rescue left. Like to hear the message, to, to, to receive the rescue, but then to turn away from it is the most horrific warning the passage has. Um, but we're not to be of those like her who, who, shrink, who shrink back but who, who believe? I, I guess this was happening massively in the early church. They'd, they'd believed about Jesus. Their life had changed dramatically. Now people are starting to persecute them and think, you're so weird. How can you be following this dead saviour? Like, no, but he has genuinely changed our lives. Uh, but life has got harder as a result. When life got hard, there were lots of people who were tempted just to think, oh, we'll go back because it's more comfortable. We'll just tuck back into our pew Back in the synagogue, hopefully no one will notice that we just we left for a while. 
Because, you know, we thought Jesus had saved the planet and was coming again at some point in the future. Oh, silly us. We're just heading back now. We'll just slot in. We'll just slot back into the world. We'll just kind of ease ourselves back in. There's no hope by going that way. So don't go that way. Now, I'm not really sure how to land this message other than to perhaps read the final few verses. It says in verse 27, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, uh, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. 